Each year, it is my privilege to produce for you more than 200 Cato Daily podcasts featuring Cato scholars, outside experts, journalists, lawmakers, and others with interesting things to say. And at Cato, we accept no government money. We are entirely funded by private citizens and organizations. That means both Cato and the Cato Daily Podcast are completely dependent on your support. To keep the Cato Daily Podcast strong and growing, we've launched a new podcast sponsor program for this holiday season. Any and all donations to support the podcast are most appreciated, but at the $1,000 level of support, you'll become a Cato patron sponsor, which means you'll receive all the benefits of patron sponsorship. Additionally, unless you object, I'll personally thank you on the podcast. Cato is a 501c3 charitable organization, which means that your gift is tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. To learn more, visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And as always, thank you for listening. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 29th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. What incentives govern private prisons? And if incarceration is a proper function of government, should private prisons and the unions that represent prison workers hold such sway over government policy? Lauren Brooke Eisen is author of Inside Private Prisons. We spoke last month. President Eisenhower uh, in, I believe, 1961, on his way out of office, gave a speech that's become known as the military-industrial complex speech. It was sort of the last comment that uh, President Eisenhower made before he left office, and he described a uh, set of incentives that, uh, if not kept in check, would uh, allow... um, Companies that produce weapons to derive huge profits and essentially influence uh, the Pentagon to uh, struggle to get more funding so that they could then fund these companies, which might then fund support in Congress. In fact, I believe the original term was the military-industrial-congressional complex. But you argue here that there is a similar set of, of uh, incentives operating with respect to imprisoning people, some of which we should probably all agree should be separated from society, but others maybe not. So what is the, what is the central argument that you're making? The argument around the prison industrial complex is looking at a set of interests that profit off of and perpetuate mass incarceration. So the term became widely used in about 1998 when uh, journalist Eric Slosher wrote an article for The Atlantic called The Prison Industrial Complex. And he mapped out all of the different corporations, telecommunications corporations, um, healthcare companies, food industry, the very many companies that make a profit off of those who are behind bars. And that term has been used ever since then to describe not just the private prison corporations that most people are aware of that house and care for those who are incarcerated behind bars, but for the vast set of um, capitalist uh, corporations that profit off of incarceration. And so my book, Inside Private Prisons, devotes a chapter to 
this complex of corporations. And the reason why they are so significant is because when we talk about de-incarcerating, when we talk about reducing state and federal prison populations, this vast set of corporations makes it much more difficult to downsize prison populations in this country. All right. So how do, the, how do these uh, corporations attempt to influence policy with respect to prisons or how we go about deciding who ought to be imprisoned and for how long and where? So in conducting research for the book, I looked at the corporations that own and operate prisons, um, specifically Geo Group, CoreCivic, and MTC. Those are the three largest private prison corporations in the United States. They, they tend to be more household names. But a lot of people in this country are, are simply unaware of the other corporations like JPay, And that's a corporation that incarcerated individuals call the Apple of the prison industry. And they charge $10 for video conferencing services. So if an incarcerated individual wants to speak and, and um, see his or her family, they have to pay ten dollars uh, for, let's say, about a half an hour of this of this video conferencing. Um, so this is video conferencing that is built into the system. It is a sort of a closed system, and prisoners pay X dollars in order to uh, communicate with their families or friends. They do, and uh, for example, JPay charges fifty five cents an email. Um, they will send money to incarcerated individuals behind bars, but they charge a, a fee, a commission for that. And a lot of these companies, JPay is one of them, they will pay the state for a monopoly in in that state. You know, they'll, they'll pay the, the state for the sole contract if it's a telecommunications company, if it's a company like JPay. And so these are um, corporations that have become entrenched in incarceration and um, when we talk about how these corporations have influenced increased prison populations, you really need to peel back the layers of the onions. Um, there are lobbyists who work for you know, the larger private prison corporations, Geo Group and CoreCivic, um, but just this idea that there's so many corporations that need um, people behind bars to sustain their own businesses is... Um, a significant problem when we do talk about starting to reduce prison populations because we have an entrenched um, corporate sector that really relies on this industry for its profit. So you said that you mentioned these corporations that, that have this uh, incentive or uh, I guess for their for their bottom lines, a need to make sure that you know, the sludge keeps flowing and that people continue to be put away so that demand for their services uh, will um, continue. I mean, typically we call that rent seeking. Um, so are there other groups that express a profound interest in maintaining uh, the high levels of incarceration that we have in the United States? So... Zooming out even beyond these corporations, and that the book also examines the power of prison unions. And while these are not corporations, um, unions are very powerful in New York and California. And specifically in New York, the prison union made it very hard for current Governor Cuomo to close prisons in the state. And Governor Cuomo 
did in fact close 13 prisons in New York. And the union spoke out about how the prisons would be you know, more dangerous if corrections officers were let go. You know, these prisons would riot and they would be unsafe and they would be inhumane. Um, and Governor Cuomo did, in fact, end up closing 13 prisons in the state. But there are powerful forces and groups beyond just corporations that also sustain high prison populations. And so we do need to look at all of those um, forces together. And the book examines the power of unions as well. What is the uh, what fraction of total prison beds in America is are available in private prisons? So about eight percent of those incarcerated at the state level are in private prisons. When we look at the federal level, it's closer to eighteen percent. And what a lot of people are very unaware of is that 65% of ICE's immigrant detention beds are privatized. So we have essentially privatized immigration detention in America, and it's very significant today because we've already seen in the current budget that the Trump administration has asked for $1.2 billion in the 2018 federal budget to expand detention capacity to more than 48,000 beds a day. The current daily capacity ranges from about 28,000 to 38,000. So we're certainly going to see a significant increase in the number of immigrant detention beds, and the private prison industry will really see a benefit um, if this budget is passed. Now, you mentioned uh, unions. Of course, unions are corporations in a in a sense. They're organized in different a part different part of the tax code than um, for-profit uh, corporations are explicitly for-profit corporations. And since the, um, the the share of beds that are run by these for-profit companies, if, if I were to pick a group that was more profound in affecting policy with respect to prisons, I would pick unions. And the book examines and, and, and looks at that issue. And it's a very complex issue. But at the end of the day, there are many factors that perpetuate mass incarceration, and we need to look at all of those groups, all of the industries that seek to benefit from more people behind bars. And it's important that we look at the power of unions. It's important that we look at the power of all of these corporations that are incentivized to perpetuate mass incarceration. And it's important that we look at the power of these corporations that own and run prisons. And all of these taken together... Um, are really a powerful force when the country starts to look at reducing prison populations, which is what we're doing in a lot of states today. So, yeah, states have really, I mean, if we if we think about the, the problem of incarceration or over-incarceration uh, in the United States, the states are not only hold the vast majority of prisoners, but they are also essentially leaders on reducing uh, sentencing reducing um, a lot of incarceration that is counter not only not productive it's counterproductive so what are some of the what are some states doing that uh, reduce the demand for prison services private or otherwise well, you're exactly right and in the past decade 27 states have both decreased crime and incarceration so we are starting to see states lead the way in reducing incarceration in this country. And many states have um, started to reduce their prison populations through a program called Justice Reinvestment. 
and that was of federal grants under the Obama administration, and some states are still um, working under the Justice Reinvestment Program. And the idea is that they examine their who's going into their prisons, why, um, and a lot of the states that have received this justice reinvestment money have determined that 30 to 40 percent of the people coming into their prisons are actually there for technical revocations from probation or parole. So a lot of these people haven't committed a new crime. They've just violated their conditions of probation or parole. And states have started to change their criminal codes, look at how probation and parole can work with um, formerly incarcerated individuals or people who they're trying to keep out of prison better through graduated sanctions, intermediate sanctions, um, you know, ways to keep people in the community instead of sending people back to jail or prison. A lot of states have updated their criminal codes, believe it or not. Um, a lot of states, especially in the South, you know, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, a few years ago had criminal codes where, you know, $500 or, you know, very low levels of property crimes um, were triggering a felony offense. And so a lot of states have modernized their criminal codes. You know, an iPhone is now 800 or $1,000, and, you know, stealing an iPhone could be a felony in some states. And so states are starting to rethink who needs to be incarcerated and for how long, and that's pretty significant. And at the federal level, the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act has been introduced, and the federal policymakers are really looking towards the states, and they're learning from the states because so many states have been successful at reducing incarceration. You mentioned states in the South. Uh, those tend to be more Republican. Is there a partisan component to states that reform prison populations? There's a huge bipartisan movement towards creating safer communities while also reducing incarceration in this country. And Georgia, Texas, South Carolina have been leaders at reducing incarceration and changing their criminal codes and their policies. In fact, Georgia recently uh, reformed its criminal code and its juvenile justice code in an attempt to keep more people out of prison and send more people to what's called alternatives to incarceration, such as drug courts, veterans courts, you know, DWI courts, all of these courts that where people can receive programming and see a judge and, you know, perhaps look at the drivers of why they may have committed a crime in the first place without receiving a jail or prison sentence. So we have seen these southern states lead the way on criminal justice reform. So uh, at a broader sort of more philosophical uh, level, um, I, I think generally libertarians view the prison population as one of uh, just too many laws, too many uh activities that you can engage in that will trigger some sort of criminal uh, penalty and that ultimately the solution to prisons and creating the problems that we might associate with private prisons is simply to decriminalize a whole host of activities. But I, I, I guess this, the sense that I get from you is that the fact that there are these large organized groups, be it unions or uh, private uh, corporations that depend on there being a demand for uh, prison additional prisoners being sent off to prison uh, is a countervailing force when it comes to trying to reform 
uh, criminal justice in the United States. That seems fairly intractable. Um, and does it make more sense to simply say, well, look, the imprisoning people and overseeing people, taking away people's freedom, is it appropriate to say, look, that's just a core function of government, of separating people from society who uh, we've determined simply don't have the uh, ability to live among us? Is it appropriate to say, look, we just need to get rid of this uh, system of uh, privatizing prisons? And that's what the book looks at. So it asks the question, what does it mean for a for-profit company to manage jails and prisons? Is it legal to de delegate such a core government authority and such a core government duty? Is it moral to do so? The book looks at, do private prisons save money? And even so, does that still validate the industry? And perhaps the most important question that the book examines is how we got to the point where such a significant public policy is delegated to a major corporation. And at the end of the day, the book takes the realistic viewpoint that President Trump is um, our current president of the United States. Attorney General Sessions is head of the Justice Department. We've already seen the administration begin to rely more heavily on the private prison industry. So while we have hundreds of thousands of people cycling in and out of private prisons, private immigration detention centers. We owe it to them to make their lives better, to improve programming in those facilities, to improve conditions of confinement, to improve transparency and accountability behind the bars in those prisons and detention centers, and ultimately to reduce recidivism. So the book does make recommendations on how to reform the industry so that we can finally hold corporations' feet to the fire and say, if you want these government contracts, we're going to require you to change how you run these places. So you also, when you talk about how the government runs prisons, it's not necessarily better. No, it's not. And recidivism rates in this country are close to 75%. And that means that about three-quarters of the people who leave prison return within three years. So the government's doing a pretty terrible job. At now, one idea that I had heard uh, from a friend was that uh, prisons' budgets should be in part determined by outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, outcomes for prisoners who leave. And that, uh, you know, the judgments that we uh, make about how effective imprisonment is as a punishment. Of course, there are a whole lot of questions that are perfectly reasonable about uh, whether or not prisons are even necessary. <laughs> there are not an insignificant number of libertarians who would argue we should essentially get rid of prisons. But uh, to the extent that we agree that they're necessary, uh, would it be more appropriate to say to the managers of prisons, look, if you can't uh, either yourselves or as, as groups of different prisons, say, uh, provide the kind of programming that that is shown to reduce recidivism, your budget will be in trouble. And the book makes recommendations very much in line with that suggestion for private prisons. So the book recommends that corporations receive bonuses if they can beat the government's recidivism rate. That would incentivize more programming. That would incentivize these corporations to provide job training and connect 
individuals behind bars with employers once they're released. Are the incentives fundamentally different between public and private prisons? Because beating the government's recidivism rate is is not exactly something to cheer about. Exactly. But that's why um, private prisons were – we started to rely on them in the mid-1980s because so many states had overcrowded prisons and unhygienic and humane prisons and were facing court orders to reduce – their prison populations and the number of people behind their bars. So these corporations came in at that time and they said, look, the government's doing a lousy job. Let us innovate. Let us house these individuals and do a better job than what the government's doing. And a lot of very smart policymakers and academics thought, well, one, you know, we don't have much choice because we're having we're having problems getting our prisons under control. But two, Let's see if they can innovate. And 40 years later, we haven't seen that innovation. And we're not talking about a recidivism rate that should be that hard to beat. When three quarters of the people in this country who are released from prison are returning within three years, we really do need to require these private prisons to actually track the recidivism rates. And they're not doing that today. They should be tracking recidivism rates at their institutions. And they should be improving upon the government's recidivism rates. and, and the So the recidivism rate uh, at private prisons, uh, they're not even tracking it? And presumably they are tracking it for state-run prisons? So what happens is the Department of Corrections can tell you their recidivism rate for individuals in their state who return to prison. But no one is looking at the recidivism rate at specific facilities, specifically private prisons. And the private prison industry is not looking at its own recidivism rates. And I spoke to a very smart researcher at the um, Pennsylvania Department of Corrections who has figured out how to track recidivism rates at halfway houses in their state, some of which are privately owned, most of which are privately owned and run, and recidivism rates at different state facilities. So it can be done and it's not that hard, and we really need to require the private industry to start tracking the recidivism rates, but for a purpose, so that they can start to improve outcomes for the people that leave their facilities. Here's an, this is another philosophical question, but you know, I've talked to uh, some friends who uh, believe that essentially inmates ought to be paying for their own imprisonment. And I, I, I disagree strenuously with that because I think taking away somebody's freedom to the extent that we've decided we, however defined, have decided that this person can't live in proper society, um, it, that's the decision that we've made. And therefore, we, again, however constituted, ought to be paying for it. And so is there a difference between... Uh, public sector and private, privately run prisons uh, in terms of access of these uh, of, of companies to use this prison labor to produce cheap goods. So what you're referring to is what's called pay to stay. And a lot of state uh, jails, county jails, state prisons do require individuals, and these are government facilities, and they sometimes require individuals to what's called, you know, pay for their stay, meaning they may have to pay room and board at their facility, $40 a day, $60 a day. They have to pay for, you know, toiletries and other items. And in most states in this country, the majority of states, if an uh, individual at a jail or a prison is working while incarcerated, a portion of that income 
is taken, you know, right right off the top from the Department of Corrections or the county jail to pay for that person's time behind bars. And I vehemently disagree with this practice um, and do believe that if we as a society have determined that someone has violated the criminal code and that their punishment is a sanction behind bars, the government needs to foot that bill. And when you talk about the private sector, you know, you mentioned prison labor, immigration detention labor, and individuals who are incarcerated in both prisons and immigration detention centers, whether public or private, do tend to have jobs. Some states actually require incarcerated individuals to have jobs at the prison while they're behind bars. And this idea of people working behind bars is complicated, but at the end of the day, if people are working, they need to be paid at a working rate, at a, at a working rate. At um, a market, whatever the market would bear for somebody outside of prison. Or, you know, some sort of a wage that is not pennies on the dollar, which is what happens today. And even so, at these, so who is in charge of that? Is that Unicor for the most part, Unicor being prison industries? So Unicor is at the federal level and every state has its own industry. So it sort of has its own Unicor. So Colorado, for example, has the Colorado corrections industry and Kentucky has Kentucky corrections industry. And I've been to some of these um, storefronts where you can buy a desk or a chair that incarcerated individuals have made in these state prisons. And the people behind bars who are making these desks, making these chairs, making this furniture are are paid almost nothing. I mean, they might be paid a quarter, you know, a day, 50 cents a day, a couple dollars a day. And, you know, these industries, these state corrections industries do make money and it helps pay for the people behind bars. Uh, But, you know, if you talk to most incarcerated individuals who are behind bars today, they'll tell you that you know they want to work, they want to be busy, but they should be paid at a, a minimum wage, and they should also be trained in jobs that are that will that exist outside of jo- prison. Jobs where they can receive a certificate while they're behind bars, and then use that certificate to get a job once they are released into the community. And there's just not a, enough of that network between businesses that will hire formerly incarcerated people and departments of corrections across the country. So this isn't really a private prison issue. This is this is an issue that the government really needs to do better at. We really need to connect incarcerated individuals, formerly incarcerated individuals to businesses who will hire them. See, so my my main general sense is that it should be expensive to put someone in prison and that it is a decision that uh, ought to be made very, very carefully. And to the extent that that governments are farming out the task of housing these inmates and then compelling inmates to work at a very low cost, pay for their own stay, pay for their own toiletries and the toothbrushes and that sort of thing. It seems to me that that in cheapening the process of putting someone in prison, you've essentially made it easier. And that, that strikes me as a really serious problem that we ought to be grappling with. I know it's slightly beyond the scope of what your book talks about, but what do you make of that idea? So your point is an excellent one. And when we have made the decision to 
send someone behind bars, to send someone to jail or prison because they violated the criminal code, that should be an expensive decision. Um, we are depriving someone of his or her liberty. That person will be away from his or her family, community, job, resources. And it is expensive. It costs about thirty to $40,000 a year to house someone behind bars in this country. And the compa- comparisons are always, well, that's the cost of a year at Harvard. That's the cost of a university education for one year. And that's right. And that should be the comparison. Imprisonment should be expensive. Imprisonment should be used sparsely and when we really think it is necessary because that person is a harm to the community, that person is a public safety threat. And the Brennan Center wrote a report last year finding that almost 40% of those behind bars do not need to be there from a public safety perspective. So we are housing way too many people behind bars in this country today. 2.2 million people are incarcerated. Um, that's more than any other country in the world. And, and part of that is just driven by the fact that the United States is a wealthy country. Well, it's not just that. In 1972, we housed about 300,000 people in jails and prisons. Today, we house 2.2 million people in jails and prisons. And we ha- house so many people behind bars because of our policies There are other very wealthy countries in the world that are not housing so many people in their jails and prisons. And our criminal justice policies are very draconian, very punitive. They send way too many people behind bars in the first place. And what's also very significant is that our policies require people to stay in prison far too long. And when you look at um, any prison population in this country, you need to look at who goes in and how long they're staying. And you know, people in this country um, receive life without parole at much higher levels than any other country on the planet. Lauren Brooke Eisen is author of Inside Private Prisons. As we approach the end of 2017, consider supporting the Cato Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by joining our new podcast sponsor program. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and learn more about the benefits of sponsorship. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor.